This piece, Growth, Impact, and Accessibility with podcast critic and advocate Elena Fernandez-Collins was originally published on HowlRound Theatre Commons on March 4th, 2020. Please see the link in the show notes to take you to the transcript on the HowlRound website. Adventures in Audio Fiction is supported by HowlRound Theatre Commons, a free and open platform for theatre makers worldwide. The HowlRound podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and HowlRound.com. Hey friends, welcome to Adventures in Audio Fiction. My name is Tamara Kassane. I'm a theatre maker and the host of the podcast Artist Soapbox based in Durham, North Carolina. Although theater is my first and enduring love, over the last three years, my creative work has turned increasingly towards writing and producing scripted audio fiction, first by adapting versions of my stage plays into audio dramas, and more recently by writing to audio directly as I develop two scripted audio fiction serials. This interview series for HowlRound is part of my quest to learn more about audio drama by speaking with the people who are working in the medium, some of whom have a background in theater and some who don't. But either way, they are knocking it out of the park. I have so many questions, and you may have some too. As theater artists, what can we learn from audio fiction creators? What skills can we leverage to create powerful audio work? What do we need to learn? Is scripted audio fiction an evolution of a theatrical form, or is it its own distinct and discrete form altogether? Ellie Fernandez-Collins is one of my favorite podcast reviewers, critics, and advocates. In this conversation, we dig into impact, accessibility, the formation of critical language, some best practices, and more. Elena Fernandez-Collins is a podcast critic and forensic sociolinguist living in Portland, Oregon. She writes about podcasts for her own website, for outlets like The Bellow Collective, The AV Club, and Podcast Review, and curates her own newsletter about fiction podcasts titled Audio Dramatic. In the time that she's not trying to promote audio fiction and indie creators in the podcasting sphere... She's working on a linguistics thesis about non-native English speaker comprehension of the Miranda rights in the United States. In the distant past, she performed in college stage plays. More recently, you can hear her as the voice of Marisol, the intergalactic pizza delivery girl on Ostium's special episodes for International Podcast Month, and as Soledad Marquez on Valence. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Ellie. Thank you so much for this conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with something that I know we have in common, which is our great fondness for scripted audio fiction. Can you talk about what initially piqued your interest? One summer when I was younger, I was in Southern Illinois in my grandmother's house in the middle of nowhere, tiny town, no access to a vehicle because I couldn't really drive at that point. I had nobody else and my grandmother's health was failing and it was rough. I felt really isolated and the the internet wasn't great. And so it meant that I had kind of patchy access to my support network at the time. Um, And usually my mother comes with me when, when I'm with my grandmother. Um, Usually I have her there to like sort of shoulder part of the burden, but she wasn't there at this point. That meant that I was dealing with everything on my own and living with untreated various mental health issues. And so when I just dis- I discovered 
audio fiction podcasts through the miracle of the internet when I could get access to it. And immediately found stories that felt like they were talking to me mm-hmm. and stories that I could hang on to. Specifically, I found I found this one called Wormwood. It's an older podcast. It's like one of our one of the first scripted fiction podcasts. It's about a tiny town in the middle of nowhere in the Midwest. And it actually turns out that uh, the monster in it is based on legends in the area where I was living that summer, which I found out like a year ago from the creators. So I think <laughs> it was that, I think it was a little bit faded that that was going to happen. Yeah, it was. They gave me something to hang on to and something to look forward to and find myself in. Yeah, I don't think it can be overstated how important it is to have access to those stories and those worlds, especially for times, and I'll just speak for myself, for times in my life when I can't show up except in my bedroom or in the middle of the night, and I need to be able to call that art into my life at the time at which it works for me. And so having that access has been so helpful. And then there's the the, the intimacy of having those voices speak in your ears, which to me at least gave me a connection. I felt like, oh, these people, like I know them. <laughs> they 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 mean something to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um that's a really common strength that's mentioned about podcasts. In that pro column of why everyone should start a podcast, one of those bullet points is often because it has a low barrier of entry. I know that you have some thoughts about that that I would like to hear. Uh, I think your thoughts can be characterized as wanting to separate that (laughs) and kind of (laughs) strike it from, or at least talk about how it's just a more complicated idea than people like to think. So would you share your thoughts about that? I think that people think about podcasting, you know, when you're thinking about making it, it's often considered very superficially uh, when you're thinking about the low barrier entry, a microphone, a computer, access to the internet and yourself and a story. That is theoretically true, but there's so much more involved and layered underneath all of those things in order to succeed or even feel like you have successfully created a podcast. And in order to to have the attention that is competitive with the market of podcasts that exist today, right? So not only do you need a computer, but you need, right, the software. And yeah, there's free software, but you need to know how to use the software. And not just use the software, but you need to know how sound works. And you need to understand how you can manipulate sound using the tools that you have. And that also means that you need to understand things like, in in conjunction with the microphone, you need to understand things about soundproofing. You need to understand how to get your mic to give you the best quality sound that you can, which is why people end up, you know, recording in closets um, or right. underneath blankets, right? Because it, it allows for, they learn about sound dampening, but that's all that they have. And necessarily it's going to be not as good sound dampening as someone who has the money to spend on a sound booth or even just to build one in their home. And the thing about learning about sound and how to edit sound, which is absolutely crucially necessary for podcasting, if you don't already know how to do that and you weren't someone who was able to get an education for it, then you have to learn it by yourself or from somebody else. And that means that you need the time and the energy to put into doing that. And a lot of people just don't have that because people need to work to make money to eat and pay rent. So like, there's there's a lot of layers to this concept of making a podcast. And I think that two of the primary reasons why we need to do away with low barrier of entry is fall, it reinforces this false belief that podcasting is easy and that like anyone can do it. Mm-hmm. In, in That's said in a very dismissive kind of tone. 
And this then then results in a lot of people considering indie podcasting, independent creation of podcasts as a hobby instead of a professional artistic endeavor. Right. Right. And so there's a lot of steps that get us there that a lot of people just don't see because we don't talk about them and we need to talk about them. And I think something that often gets ignored in all areas of art is actually the emotional expenditure of putting your art out there. Right. Yes. Talk about that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, right, podcasting happens online Mm -hmm. and it's the 21st century, which means podcasting happens in front of everyone. And your first podcast, everyone sees it. Your first drawing is something that you can keep hidden, right? You don't have to show anyone that. But your first podcast ends up being something that everybody can see and everybody is going to judge merit or critique, like judge merit on it or critique it or they're going to analyze it because they have the access to it. For marginalized artists especially, this can result in a lot of um, microaggressions. Uh, Mm -hmm. This can result in a lot of racist or homophobic and transphobic feedback and uh, marginalized artists of all kinds have to be able to deal with that like something that they always are going to have to have energy for is dealing with the fact that it's the internet so these people exist (laughs) in their lives aggressively right and they're witnessing their art and that's a lot that's just a lot and we don't talk about that nearly enough in all forms of art I think most artists want the exposure, right? We want, Mm -hmm. theoretically, we want our work to go out to as many people as possible. And it sounds so beautiful that anybody can access, you know, this thing that you're creating, but that may rapidly lead to a feeling of being sort of overexposed and an intense vulnerability that you can't, it's very hard to screen what comes back at you. I don't think there are a lot of protective screens for creators who put their work out there and sort of knowing how to respond to, and I'm air quoting, feedback that may be harmful, not only in that moment, but to their work going forward. I don't know. That's that's something that we're just going to have to reckon with, I think, as a community, because that's very problematic. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge issue. I mean, I'm not like, one thing that I want to say, right, is that marginalized people, especially if they are visibly marginalized, deal with this every day of their lives, right? They deal with it out in the street and they deal with it in families and in like work circles and all of this stuff. And so if we can, as various communities working in these fields, can deal with this, what you're talking about exactly, right? If we can figure out how to work with that and how to support these artists, then we might be able to foster a better understanding of creating art in a community way. Right. So we're lifting each other up. Exactly. My favorite phrasing from, I don't know who it's from at this point. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it's Amanda McLaughlin of Multitude, but I'm not 100% positive. A rising tide uh, raises all ships. Yes. Yes. It's funny when you were talking about... It's just so easy to start a podcast. Of course, in the theater world, there's the whole like, I've got a barn, let's do a play. And, you know, and people think, like, <laughs> what do you need? It's some some people and some black blocks and some seats and you got to play. And it's just, uh, it's like, yeah, but not exactly. And when you come to see it, you're going to be expecting something different than that. So it's a little bit more nuanced, let's say. Yeah. (laughs) Nuance. Good word. 
It's my opinion, and I'm curious to hear what you think about this, that podcast criticism is sort of struggling to grow, but theater criticism is kind of struggling not to die, or at least it's kind of trying to struggle in this transformation or metamorphosis so that it can be contemporary, it can be inclusive um, mode of critique. So given that, what what are the challenges that you're facing? Because you're at the front lines of this sort of this nascent field of podcast criticism, as it seems to be forming kind of in real time. What does that look like to you? Well, my one word review is wolf. I, I participated in a critics roundtable a little while ago. It was wonderful. You can find it on the Radio Drama Revival feed. It was uh, hosted by Jeffrey Nils Gardner of Heart Life NFP. And in it, we discuss how we can get to this level of, of criticism and regard for audio criticism other fields have and what it is that we are missing to get there. Mm-hmm. And it's based on this incredible article by Sarah Montague that was published with the Sarah Awards a few years ago that's called Towards a Poetics of Audio, The Importance of Criticism. Uh, she talks about the, the vital importance of a critical language and with it a critical practice. A critical language has all of these forms and tropes and themes and references to larger culture, and it's used to inform critique, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have that yet. This is a foundational level of criticism And because this particular field is still developing, we don't have that foundation yet. And we are still building it. Like all of us, everyone who is writing podcast criticism right now is participating in the building of that critical language that will be used later. And and that's extremely challenging, right? Because if you go into movie criticism, if you go into theater criticism, that language has existed already. It has a critical language because it's been around for a while. And so they already have that that foundation. And so the not the problem, but the big challenge that we're facing right now is the fact that we are building this critical language and and with it, right, Sarah Montague's critical practice, right? It's gonna have, you know, tools and it's gonna be constant and the tools will help us like help the public un- better understand artists. And it's happening constantly and it's happening robustly and honestly, but it can't happen without the language. How do you do this other than to just write about it? Good question. I participated in a uh, in a roundtable. <laughs> <laughs> we round about that every for an hour. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, what we need. More roundtables. <laughs> more roundtables. Actually, first is the an- is there's no easy answer right now, right? This is not something people intentionally built in the sense of I am creating this foundation of work so that we can talk about it later, at the very least with some of some of the fields, depending on which field we're talking about. But first, I think after understanding that there is basically no easy answer and that you have to be constantly engaging with the audio medium and the podcast medium in particular, it is by intentionally engaging with podcasts and with podcasts as their own art form and not trying to import critical language mm. from other art forms. This I see this happening a lot in in specifically in mainstream media criticism. It's very very rare that they will have someone whose beat is dedicated to podcasts. Mm-hmm. They will pull from someone who does TV or who does theater or who does movies and tell them to write this 
in some cases, they may have pitched it themselves. I don't know. Um, but the ones that I've read feel like things that editors want to have written. And so they just go to someone in-house who's like vaguely related. I think that this is a mistake. I don't think that we should be trying to analyze podcasts through the lens of media, like movie criticism or theater criticism, because it's not going to work. Because those, right, they, the, the all of these other areas have basis heavily in something else, right? Books are, book criticism is based heavily on written literature and written text. Stage and theater it has visual components, so do um, movies and TV. But podcasts are purely audio. So you have to analyze it like audio. And we have something else that's only audio, and it's radio, right? Mm. And in, back in the 40s and in the 50s, there was a huge amount of radio drama. If we're talking specifically about, you know, fiction podcasts, there was a huge amount of radio drama as well as, you know, radio talk shows and the news. But that died out, right? We had this mm. huge gap in the production of radio drama and then what we now, what we're calling fiction podcasts. And because there was that gap... We didn't have the same, like in that gap, the language is, the language for all of these other mediums was developing. And so we're basically trying to overcome this multi-decade gap right now. Because the radio that we have right now, you know, NPR, public radio, all this stuff that basically is just like talk shows, hosted narrative investigation, up until they started moving towards podcasts as well, there also was no serious criticism about radio. Right. You wouldn't find an article written like analyzing the body of work of like uh, a talk show on NPR. Mm -hmm. Like that wouldn't that wouldn't be published in a newspaper a while ago, right? That just wouldn't happen. You would have people talking about like I'm so tired of talking heads, right? Or um or I really love the way that he talks about X problem, but you wouldn't find someone doing criticism. <laughs> and there is a distinction here in the sense of like Criticism is analyzing not just the um, singular particularities, but the entire body of work, even if you're just looking at like one, in this case, episode um, or one show. If we're talking about uh, radio, one program slot, you're mm -hmm. you have to be looking at it within the whole body of work. Right. Essentially as an expert, right? So mm -hmm. somebody who has <laughs> an understanding of both breadth and depth of mm -hmm. this medium. I've been talking to a lot of people because I'm from a theater background and I'm transitioning into making these scripted audio pieces. I've been casting about using what I do understand. So it's like, okay, well, it's kind of like theater in these ways, but it's actually also kind of like screenwriting in these ways, but it's also sort of like writing a TV show, but nothing works. As you say, we can't sort of jam this into another, like the puzzle pieces don't quite fit. It's like a different thing. And so why not let it be a different thing? But I think there's a little bit of a lag time, right? Because until we understand what this new thing is, we're still using outdated language that doesn't exactly apply so that it can make sense to us. It's a really interesting time. Yeah. Um, and you're right about the outdated language. There's a ton of criticisms and and reviews written about podcasts that about scripted fiction podcasts that still use the terms old time radio drama as a comparison point and every time i read it i want to fling myself and my computer out the window <laughs> i hope you don't have to read that anymore because that sounds Thank you. dire <laughs> yeah it's really bad it's like it's it's different it's different everybody
All right. I have two questions. One is that I want to go back a little bit and ask you what you think that creators of scripted audio fiction are doing really well. What is sort of giving you hope about this medium? And I, of course, I'm asking this with an ulterior motive and that is like, what can we take and, you know, be inspired by as theater makers or as artists who are kind of straddling these two mediums? What are people doing that you think is like right on target? I think that they are constantly talking about what stories we are missing. You know, every time that I go to talk about what it is that I like to see in podcasts, there is somebody else out there who is talking about what stories they want to hear and and what stories they want to witness because they don't exist yet. And someone has that story, right? But they haven't been given the platform or haven't found the opportunity in order to do so. And I think the fact that that conversation is happening and it is helping more stories flourish is really incredible. And I, I want to say very specifically here that I see that conversation happening a lot in independent artist circles, um, right. independent podcast creator circles. They they are the ones doing the work of being like, hey, you know, public radio is not the be all end all. There are other people who are able to tell these stories and people within public radio, right, marginalized people within public radio have been talking about the fact that there is just no change happening anywhere. And it's all the same voice telling all the stories. I think that there is a willingness to have this conversation. And I'm seeing more, more varied stories occurring and coming out. And I think that's really beautiful. I'm heartened by the self-production that's happening mm -hmm. across audio fiction. And it's happening, of course, at the in the theater as well. But because the stories that are going out in podcast form are more accessible than the new plays that are de being developed that only, you know, 50 people will see, I'm just, I'm very excited by people kind of doing some empowering of these stories and distributing them. I know it's really hard for all the reasons that you and I already talked about, but I feel really grateful that it is happening. There's absolutely something to be said for the fact that people have realized that they can tell this story and their story in this way, and people will be able to access it. The fact that there is a path that is fairly clear at the very least in the sense of like, okay, well, I don't have to wait for someone to tell me that I can do it. Right. You jump the gate. Yeah. Yeah. And so in that in that sense, in that very specific sense, podcasting is highly accessible in that very specific sense. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Underline, like double underline. Right. In book publishing, you have to have a publisher. I mean, you can self-publish now, which is amazing. And I think that we should take self-publishing more seriously, but we don't. And so they end up having to fight instead the gatekeepers who hate self-publishing. Mm -hmm. Podcasting is self-publishing, but it's not viewed that way in, in the same way as with books. I know you've thought a lot about who your audience is for your critical writing about podcasts. Let's pretend for a moment that your audience of readers, or in this case, well, readers, listeners, people who are taking in your work, pretend like they're the creators of the scripted audio fiction. What are you considering when you are reviewing a scripted audio fiction podcast? So this is a complicated question for me, actually. So I want to like slightly, very slightly reframe it so that Please. I can answer it. So I, when I'm writing any kind of critique of a single podcast, I 
consider my audience to include creators because I don't know who's in my audience, right? It's people who have experienced the podcast. It's people who may want to create one of their own and become creators. It definitely includes other creators of other podcasts. And of course, the creator of the podcast that I'm critiquing. But I have to bear in mind all of these different perspectives. And with everything that I review, I have to decide first, I have to talk about the impact of the work that I am reviewing. I have to analyze the impact and I have to decide what is most important about the impact of this work that I have to talk about. And that will necessarily highlight who in my audience becomes sort of the front runner of who I'm talking to. Right. Um, I see. Yeah. If I'm analyzing a work that the story has not been well thought out and contains a lot of harmful tropes and is not well grounded in empathetic storytelling, then I'm going to talk about that and I'm going to talk about the impact that's going to have. And of course, right, because I'm looking at the impact of things like harmful like tropes, right? I am necessarily analyzing all of these other parts of the work, right? So I'm analyzing story and I'm analyzing plot and I'm analyzing like character design, right? Mm -hmm. And acting. All the other things end up getting analyzed because I have thought about the impact of the work. And so with this example where I'm talking about something that has harmful storytelling, I am often end up talking to creators or people who want to become creators because I am pointing towards something that is endemic in our society. And I and in my articles, I usually try to talk about what you could do otherwise. What Be if better. we want to tell a story like this one, but we want to tell it better? What if we removed this? What would be what would we be left with? Sometimes the answer is a skeleton that's missing some bones and you gotta go back to the drawing board. But sometimes the answer is okay, well if we take this out, we we still have a plot, we still have a sequence. There's still an idea here that sh- that can be told. And when I'm reviewing something that I loved, that I think, right, was brilliant and something where the impact that it has is even something as simple as I listened to this and it made me really happy, right? Mm-hmm. Like I listened to this and I felt hopeful. That's still an impact that I want to analyze. Okay, so why did it make me feel this way? Do I think that other people could feel this way when they listen to it? I have to think about other people listening to this who aren't me. I have to think about, so I... I am a non-binary, gender-fluid, Puerto Rican person. I am young, not even 30 yet, and I am white-passing, right? I think about all of these things. And so I think about how my experiences, and not just my experiences in my life living in like the body and the world that I do, but also my experiences with the literature that I read and the movies that I like and the genres that I enjoy, that's also part of my experience. And I think about, okay, well, who would this appeal to? When, I, when I'm writing about something that I liked and that, or that I loved, I think about who else would this appeal to? Who would this not appeal to? And I try to embed that into the work. And in that case, my primary audience becomes people who want to experience new podcasts. Thank you for sharing that because not only is it illuminating, but I think it also highlights how much work it takes <laughs> to, to do this criticism and to do this, the writing that you're talking about. I mean, that's some heavy lifting. So thank you for, for sharing that. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Are you ready to talk about the future? <laughs> yeah, I guess. 
know. <laughs> the future is now. The future is ours. We're talking, it's the end of January in 2020. Um, prior to the end of 2019, Bellow Collective gathered some predictions from its contributors, and you are a contributor. And your prediction was, quote, in the depressing corner, we'll see more Hollywood influence and strategies in fiction podcasting, for example, using celebrity names and traditional, boring and usually racist, storytelling techniques in order to hook listeners. I think this is something that a lot of indie artists have been struggling with for a long time, continue to struggle with as well, this big money, big name influence and the, as you say, boring slash racist storytelling techniques. So if that is the direction that we hope things don't go in, what direction do you hope to see that is different from that? What can we aspire to that offsets some of those things? Take risks. That's my answer for this. I, I want people to take risks and I want people to take risks with empathy and with kindness which sounds contradictory, but guess what? This is the real world and several conflicting things can be true at the same time. <laughs> I want people to take risks with their storytelling technique, with the stories that they are telling. I want people to learn to write from outside of that zone of experience that I talked about. I, and I want people to be able to approach it in a, with an open heart in a way that considers, okay, so I'm going to take this risk with this story that I'm going to make. And I need to make sure that the risk that I'm taking, the step that I am taking is not going to step on someone. But if you take that risk and you like you do it conscientiously, I think that so much beautiful, really dynamic, engaging art has been made that way. Honestly, there is no easy answer for fighting. I'm going to say it. There's no easy answer for like fighting this like capitalistic attitude towards art, right? That's what this right. is. Right. It's a capitalistic attitude. Artists need to get paid. So <laughs> if you like shoot your shot and you get hired by one of these big companies, great. Do it. Take a risk. Tell them this is the story that I want to tell. I'm gonna I'm gonna shout out the team behind Marvels. So Marvel hired Paul Bay, Lauren Shippen, and Misha Stanton to create the Marvels podcast. And they did an incredible job. So Marvel hired a bunch of indie artists to come and make this podcast, and they blew it out of the water. So it's possible. We have to bear in mind that, yes, it is possible to, like, get in there and still make art that you are proud of and is not just a cash grab, specifically, like, for the company. Not a cash grab for you, but for the company. But also, bearing in mind that this is something that we have to survive in this society. So, like, that's something that we have to learn to be okay with and be able to mitigate in other ways. Mm -hmm. But also, just like, don't stop making art and telling stories. Yes, have that night where you're just like, all right, well, capitalism is horrible and everything is terrible. And I'm going to sit in front of the TV and watch a rom-com while eating ice cream straight out of the carton. <laughs> yes, <laughs> do it. You deserve that like night where you're just like, everything's terrible. But then wake up the next morning and get back to telling stories because we need them. And it's worth it. So you may have touched on this a little bit, but I want to bring up one of your other predictions or one of your hopes, I guess. You have a newsletter, and which I love. And <laughs> in your year in review, this is what you wrote. I'm going to quote you. Quote, I'm ready for new stories from the silenced, the oppressed, and the marginalized. I'm ready for a change in the narratives to see us truly engaging with empathy instead of weaponizing kindness 
which you, you talked about all of this. And then you ended it with, I'm ready for the weird shit. And then you also mentioned this in the Bellow Collective Predictions. You wrote, quote, we'll see independent creators hearing the call for weird shit. Give me the weird shit in 2020. So I've said weird shit like seven times just now. But tell me about this. Is this content? Is this form? How do you characterize this? It's everything. It's everything. I characterize it by, this, this is why it ties into the previous thing. Remember mm-hmm. when I was talking about making taking risks? This ties into the step that you are taking. The step that you are taking might be with the story that you are telling specifically, but it can also be with the way that you are telling the story, right? It can be with the, your, your idea that like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to actually use an example from, from real podcasts. You can be, I'm going to tell a like psychedelic, like experimental audio story. I'm thinking of what's the frequency, mm-hmm. right? What's the frequency is this experimental, psychedelic, noir story set in the 40s where a radio program slowly becomes the, like a radio serial becomes the only program left on the air. And it's doing weird things to the inhabitants of Los Angeles. It's incredibly good. It is super weird and it will break your brain um, because yeah, they it's do, out there. <laughs> yeah, it's out there and it, it does weird stuff with the audio itself, with the technique, right? Like layered audio, it has weird scenes. The storytelling is, is very strange and it feels disconnected, but it, it ends up all being connected. And they create, uh, the creator made satirical 40 style ads to do real world commentary that are breaks in the episodes. It all informs each other, but it's it's weird and it's out there. Right. <laughs> There's also something like um, I mentioned Jeffrey Nils Gardner earlier. Uh, they also created this podcast called The Museum at Tomorrow, which they describe very aptly as a, a seeing a magic eye puzzle. Because what they've done is that they've taken audio recordings of field trips to museums, interviews, stories, sound and music, right? Sound effects, music. And they have layered them. Uh, They have broken them up and they've layered them so that you can hear more than one voice speaking at one time. But if you're able to like tune in to one particular voice or one particular sequence you can hear one story. And if you listen and tune in to the other one, then you can hear a different story. It is wild. It's very much an audio experience. It seemed kind of like performance art mm-hmm. almost to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's unexpected to, to hear as a listener. Yeah. So I want, I want the unexpected. And I don't just want the unexpected by things like this, right? What's the frequency? Takes risks all over the place with, with their storytelling, with the way that they framed their story, with their characters, with their audio. It just goes all out there. Museum of Tomorrow has taken some very sort of grounded, let's say, styles of talking to people and having conversations and looking at art and things like that, and then combined them in weird, risky, unusual, fascinating ways. Um, but you can also take risks the way that the recent BBC Sounds podcast did, which is incredible. I can't believe I'm saying that the BBC gave me this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's because it was spearheaded by a bunch of indie artists, specifically Ella Watts, um, put this hmm. together initially. Uh, it's Murmurs. Heard, I have not listened to it, but I've heard of it. Yeah. It's really good. It's this anthology like semi-anthology about what happens when the reality starts breaking and something else is coming through the cracks and invading. And it is fascinating. And it is so interesting to like listen to it and realize that you're getting this sort of connected perspective of different stories as well as one through line 
Mm-hmm. The lead writer is um, Janina Mathewson, and she is a co-writer of Within the Wires. And she did an incredible job piecing this together with with her team. That is some weird storytelling. It's really good. I'm excited to listen to that. Again, it's sort of heartening that indie artists, if they're given the keys to the castle, they can really transform across the culture of the stories that people have access to and of the, the way that we're telling these stories. I say that we raise our glasses to the weird in 2020 and beyond and see what that does. <laughs> yes. Is there anything else that you would like to mention or any final thoughts that you have before we wrap up? Thing that I would like to mention because I want to shout out, let's say like, I don't know, I guess like theater people or theater culture. Theater culture has done this incredible job, really good job of making sure that at the the very least in like big theaters and and independent community theaters, uh, making sure that everybody gets credited. Ah. Programs are very good about crediting everyone on the crew and making sure that everybody's name shows up. And I'm sure that there are exceptions like to everything, but in general, they're very particular about the fact that everybody gets credited in the program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a common practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a common practice. Podcasting hasn't figured out that you should do that. And the biggest offenders, which blows my mind, are podcasts from places like NPR or these big, large companies or VC funded ventures that all they do on the website is like, name the host and maybe the sound designer if you're lucky and occasionally like executive producers and that's like it it's it's problematic for a lot of reasons right because it masks the amount of work and mm-hmm. the number of people who are involved in putting that together not not to mention sort of erasing them from mm-hmm. the product especially this like there's like so many like layers of problems that are involved with this, right? So absolutely, yeah, it it masks how much work is involved. It masks, like, it hides and erases the people from the work they've put in, which is especially bad if your hosts are white and your crew is, like, has marginalized artists on it. You know, you're erasing the fact that they helped you tell a story. And you're making it harder for them to be able to say that they worked at this place. And I mean, people will be like, oh, but they get credited, like, in the audio. First of all, that means that nobody knows how to spell anybody's name. (laughs) <laughs> right. It's also important. Additionally, it means that, you know, people will might not listen to that part because it's the credits. I mean, do you sit through movie credits? Yeah, I don't sit through any credits. If I hear the yeah. credits coming, I mean, sometimes I do. Like if it's if it's something that I really highly value and I start to recognize names, I will sit through it. But usually that sort of wrap up music, that's the cue for me to say like, all right, it's over on to the next thing. And so mm-hmm. But if I was looking something up on a website or in sort of printed form, I almost certainly would read that. Podcasting needs to learn from theater in this in this way. We have to create a culture of crediting. Mm -hmm. And I've seen indie artists do this as well, where they just they they don't credit their crew or in some cases, like if scripted fiction don't even credit their actors. In one sense, they're learning from other podcasts, right? They're learning from these big name podcasts because they're taking their cues from what already exists. In one sense. Right, because because we're building, you know, we're building common practice, mm-hmm. and so they think that oh well, those are the people who are dictating what that is. Right. Oh, so we're all dictating what that is. Credit. Well, I would like to credit you with <laughs> giving me lots of really insightful and inspiring and thought provoking writing and speaking, including our conversation today. So I just want to thank you for all the work that you do and for taking time to speak with me today. Thank you. I am completely 100% sincere in that. 
If you would like to continue today's conversation, please visit HowlRound.com and follow HowlRound and Artist Soapbox on Twitter and Facebook. A big thank you to the staff at HowlRound who make this show possible. Our music is Spring Idol by Penny Miles. Check out the show notes for links and for more information. Thank you.